Good morning, everybody. Good morning to everyone here. Good morning to everyone downstairs. What's up, everybody? And um, everybody at home as well. And good morning to all the kids. I love seeing all the kids in here. Uh, my kids are in here. You probably hear them every week. Um, and I love see. I, th- I think if there's, there's many good things God has probably done that we don't even know through this whole pandemic. But I think that one of them is allowing families uh, the opportunity to worship together, whether it's here or whether it's at home. So, yeah, I see you, Clay. I see you, Nesbitts. I see you, Chris, Van Patters. Kids, um, this message is for you, too. So, um, actually, I'll give you a challenge to the kids. Um, If you hear me say one of these three words, I want you to holler at me. So, if you hear me say Jesus or Samaritan or love, you can, you can say, he said love. He said Jesus. That's what Eva does. So you can do that. Or you can holler out something else. You can teach the older folks how to interact with the preacher a little bit. <laughs> All right. So we're going to be in Luke 10. Luke 10, verse 27. Sorry, verse 25 through 37 of Luke 10. There are certain people I love to hear from. Um, I love hearing what they have to say, and they can communicate what they have to say through a number of different ways. I love hearing a good speech. I love hearing a good sermon. I love hearing a good song, a good poem, but one of my favorite ways to hear from someone is through a Q&A. I love Q&As. I'm a big Q&A guy. If I like someone as, you know, as an artist or a preacher or anybody, I'll always YouTube so-and-so Q&A because I love Q&As. They're exciting. They're fun. Anything can happen. They're candid. Like you can really find out what somebody's about through a Q&A because they can't really prepare. They're on, they're on their toes. You know, some of the most famous things that we, you know, YouTube clips that we see are clips from Q&As, you know, that, that live on forever. Like Allen Iverson. We're talking about practice, man. Not a game. Practice. Or I was thinking Charlie Sheen. That dude pretty much got famous off of an outtake from a Q&A when he was asked if he was bipolar, and he said, I'm bi-winning. And we all said winning for the next three years. Like, it was, like, the most viral thing. Or one of my favorites, R.C. Sproul, the preacher, um, was asked a question uh, in a Q&A, and he turned to the crowd and said, what's wrong with you people? <laughs> and although R.C. Sproul had 40 years of saying some of the most golden truths ever, that's the one that's going to have the most YouTube clips. So... We love Q&As. They're exciting. Anything can happen. And the level of excitement we have for a Q&A is directly related to the amount of regard and reverence and love we have for the person giving the Q&A. So today, we're going to look at a Q&A with Jesus, where Jesus talks about... Huh? Uh, Oh, yeah, there you go. All right, that's what I'm talking about. I was like, what is... I got you. I was talking to the kids, but I'm, I'm cool with it. Let's do it. All right. Um, so we're going to look at a Q&A with Jesus where he talks about the most important things in life. So are you guys excited for that? If you're not excited about the author of all life having a Q&A about the most important questions of life, I got nothing else for you. So let's do it. We're going to look here at Luke 10, verses 25 through 37. Before I read it, the setting here would be Jesus is teaching to a room full of people. So He would be standing up most likely, everyone else would be sitting down, and he would be teaching. Now, 
he, he's in the middle of teaching, and that's where we pick it up in verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? He said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to the place where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay when I come back. Which of these th three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said, You, go and do likewise. Lord, bless the preaching of your word, and let us receive with meekness your implanted word, which is able to save our souls. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so a Q&A with Jesus. I, I, I painted the picture for you of what's going on here. Jesus is teaching. Someone stands up and interrupts him and starts asking him questions. So we're going to look at three questions that are asked of Jesus. Two are explicitly asked by the person, and one he gives us for free. You know, sometimes in a Q&A, you just get one for free, and we get one for free. That's the third one. So the first question we're going to look at is... Somebody want to help me out? What's the first question that the lawyer asked? What must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, we don't know exactly what the lawyer's endgame was here, but we do know that he, he wanted to put Jesus to the test, the text says. So if there was anyone in the world that could, that could catch Jesus off his game, it would be this guy, right? If there was anybody who could throw Jesus off, get him caught in a lie or something like that, it was this guy. He was a lawyer. He was a, this is what they do. He was an expert on the rabbinical law, and he was going to put Jesus to the test. Has anyone ever been in an argument with a lawyer? Even if you're right, you're wrong. Like, this is not a good situation if, if, a, if a lawyer questions you. And this lawyer asked Jesus, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And guys, this is the most important question in all of the universe. What must I do to inherit eternal life? There are many questions that we walk in here with today. There are many questions that may be going through our minds and today or the past week. And if the last year has done anything, it's probably given us more questions than we ever have had. And they're important questions, right? What's going to happen in the world? What's going to happen in the economy? What's, does the vaccine work? Should I get it? Who should I vote for? What's, what's going on? 
We have so many questions, but I would want to tell you guys that this question that the lawyer asked in comparison to all those questions, it makes those questions unimportant. Because in 10 years, in 100 years, in 1,000 years, all of those questions I just mentioned will be irrelevant. But the question that the lawyer asked here will be relevant for all eternity. He asked, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? What's eternal life? Simply put, life with Jesus now and forever. Kenny just prayed it. Pleasure, uh, fullness of joy in Christ's presence and pleasures at his right hand forevermore. That is eternal life. I wish this question would be asked more. I wish that more people would be wrestling with these questions. I, I pray that the kids that I just mentioned, the kids in here, the teens, the people in this room, our neighbors, would ask this question. There's so much working against us asking this question. Our flesh, the devil, our culture, everything wants us to, to distracted from this question. But it is the most important question in the world. What must I do to inherit eternal life? What will Jesus say? What will you say if somebody asks you that? Jesus responds with what is written in the law, which is kind of an interesting response. There, there might be a bit of sarcasm there. He's talking to a lawyer, and, and the guy says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And then the lawyer responds correctly. From the Bible, Deuteronomy 6 and Leviticus 19, he, he says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, and all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, Go and do this, and you'll have eternal life. So the guy asks, How can I get eternal life? Jesus says, Go and do this. Does that trouble any of you guys? Or does that make you scratch your head a little bit? What must I do to inherit eternal life? Go do this, Jesus says. Jesus, don't, don't you know that salvation is by faith alone, grace alone, not by works so that no one may boast? What's going on here? There's a tension here that we're seeing. And when there's a tension in our Bibles, a lot of our first responses is to just avoid it. Just blow right past it. Let's pretend I didn't see that. And I want to encourage you guys that actually when, when there's a tension in your Bible, we're meant to embrace that tension. We're meant to get out a shovel and start digging and find out what's going on. John Dewey said, people only truly think when they are confronted with a problem. Without some sort of dilemma to stimulate thought, behavior becomes habitual rather than thoughtful. So when there's a tension in your Bible, when something doesn't seem to add up, maybe it seems to contradict itself, don't move past it. Dive into it head first. The Bible's not threatened by our questions. Or the Bible is perfectly, eternally perfect. So what's Jesus doing here? In other places, Jesus says, for God, uh, for God so loved the world that he sent his son that whoever believes in him would have eternal life, right? He says in John 6, 47, truly I say to you, whoever believes in me has eternal life. And here someone asks him how to have eternal life, and he says, go and do something. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus wants us to, to understand something really important, and that's what we can learn from this tension. Jesus wants us to understand that saving faith will always produce obedience and good works. 
For someone who truly believes in Jesus, though they are not perfect, they will strive to love the Lord their God with all of their strength, all of their mind, all of their soul, and love their neighbor as themselves. Faith and obedience are two sides of the same coin. Jesus is simply emphasizing one side of the coin here. You guys follow? So as I study this interaction, I found myself asking, what would it look like for the lawyer to repent here? What would it look like for the lawyer to get saved? What would be his response? And this is what I wrote in my journal. A repentant man might respond like this to Jesus' answer. Teacher, I could never love God wholeheartedly and love my neighbor as myself on my own strength. I fall short of these things every day. What am I to do? Jesus, help me. This is a heart of someone who is ready to be saved and transformed by Jesus. The law is meant to do two things. The law is meant to show us that we are sinful and need a savior. Paul is clear about that in Galatians where he says that the law is our guardian to bring us to Christ. But the law also is meant to be a roadmap of once we receive Christ and are given power through his spirit, it gives us the roadmap on how to please God. So the law shows us we need a savior and then gives us instruction on how to walk with and please God. J.D. Greer put it this way, and I really love this illustration. He says, the law is like railroad tracks. It can point us in the right direction, but it's powerless to move us along the tracks. After we've been given the engine power to obey through the gospel, then the law can still help us know the direction we should go. So in Jesus' first answer in the Q&A, he is trying to show the lawyer. Well, I want to ask you guys this. Is Jesus, in this answer to the Q&A, is he trying to show the lawyer that he's a sinner in need of grace? Or is he trying to instruct him in the way to follow and obey God? The answer is yes. Both. He... Until the lawyer sees his sin and his need for grace, he'll never be given salvation and the power to obey God. And therefore, he will not inherit eternal life. And the same goes for us. There may be some in here who can relate to the lawyer on this question. Maybe you come here and you think, Jesus, just tell me what to do. Just tell me what to do and I'll do it. I'm a go-getter. All right? I got, you should see my to-do list this past week. I, I nailed it. Just tell me what to do and I'll do it. This is the attitude of many and it's the attitude of the lawyer. But Jesus' answer is the same to us as it is to the lawyer. Keep, go and keep the law perfectly. Will you try to do that on your own? Or will you turn to him in desperation and receive his free salvation and his grace and his power? The lawyer chose not to do the second one that I just mentioned, but the first one. He wants to try to game plan of how he can do this by himself. How can he obey the law perfectly by himself? So that leads us to his second question, which is in verse 29. It says, desiring to justify himself, he said to Jesus, well, who's my neighbor? So not, Lord, I could never do that. Help me. I need salvation. But who is my neighbor? What is the lawyer doing here? The text said he was trying to justify himself, which my brother always tells me. Anytime you see in the Bible someone trying to justify himself, it's bad news. <laughs> um. Was he trying to justify his past conduct? Was he trying to justify his future conduct? Whatever it was, what the lawyer is doing seems to be to try to soften the commandment, to try to get somewhere around it, to try to um, test how extensive it is, right? So like when I was a kid, if my mom said, um, Gabe, you need to clean up the living area, I might say, well, what is the living area exactly? You know, I'm trying to find where the line is. Where, what's the bare minimum I need to do? 
And that's what it seems that the lawyer is doing here. Who is my neighbor? Jesus. Surely it can't be everyone. What about Gentiles? What about criminals? Surely not them, right? What about tax collectors? Again, I would ask, can we relate to this? Can we relate to the lawyer in in wondering that? Jesus, I know you're calling me to love people, but surely not these people. Surely not that person who who has hurt me or who I disagree with. Who is my neighbor, Jesus? Who are you calling me to love? My friends? My wife? My husband? My kids? My coworkers? My classmates? Yes. Okay. I think I can handle that. What about those I really struggle with? Those who have hurt me? What about those who, th- who I think don't deserve my love? What will Jesus say to question number two? Who is my neighbor? Let's read his answer. So the first question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He answers with a question. The second question, who is my neighbor? He answers with a story. Verse 30. Jesus replied. This is to answer the question, who is my neighbor? Jesus replied. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Wow. So this story escalates very quickly. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, which was a road that was infamous for being dangerous. It was lined with caves. It was a 17-mile road lined with caves where robbers would sometimes hide and wait uh, for someone to, to rob. Um, and so this, this is a realistic story, and everyone in the room would have known that. And we don't have the details about this man who was robbed, but it doesn't mean we shouldn't feel the pain of what's going on here. I mean, like, we've all left our house to do something this week. Imagine leaving your family and, and those who you love and going and never coming back, being beaten and left half dead. That's what's going on here. This is, a, this is a, a person who is dead in the middle of the side of the road. He's not able to do anything for himself. He's not able to get up. He's not able to dial 911. He's just able to lay there dying, just hoping and praying that maybe, just maybe, someone might come by to help him out. Verse 31, by chance, a priest walks by. This is... This is the best case scenario. This is the most holy person that you could ever imagine. This is the leader of, of this is the, 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 the priest would be the, the leader in all of the temple, leading all of the religious ceremonies. He is the most clean person there is. He's the only one that can even approach God on behalf of the people. This is the best case scenario. This is a miracle. The priest comes, right? But when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Can you imagine that? Somebody dead on the side of the road and just looking at him and passing by on the other side? Many motives have been suggested for why the priest did this. Some people say he was on the way to the temple and he didn't want to touch a corpse because that would make him ceremonially unclean. Others say um, maybe he thought he was going to get jumped too. He couldn't risk that. He's an important guy. Some say maybe he was just late and he didn't have time. But the point is, we don't know exactly what happened, but the point is he offered no help to the dead man. 
Next, a Levite comes along. Now, the Levite would be like the priest assistant. So this guy, he's not the head honcho, but he's definitely a religious guy. So, like, this is great, too. He's going to help the guy, right? No. The language of the text indicates that the Levite took a closer look at the man, but he still passed by on the other side. Now, in studying this, this is, a, this is a famous story that a lot of us may have heard as kids, but I never understood the tension of what would have been going on as Jesus tells this story. A room full of all Jews, or at least mostly Jews, and they're listening to this story, and this is what probably would have been going through their head. They're hearing this threefold Jewish Semitic story, which is how stories would have been told. One, two, three. Priest, Levite, Samaritan, right? And they would have been expecting that this, this would be it, right? Oh, the super religious guy passed by on the other side, and then the, not, the medium religious guy passed by on the other side, and here it comes. The average Joe, blue collar, just like me, Jew comes along and saves this guy. That's probably what most of the people would have been anticipating at this point. Perhaps not everyone in the crowd was anticipating that, but certainly not one person in the crowd expected what would come next in the story. But a Samaritan. But a Samaritan. This may be the biggest plot twist in all of storytelling history. And I want to show you guys why, because I didn't see it at first, but in studying it, I was able to feel the absolute shock and tangible gasp that would have been in the room when Jesus says, but a Samaritan. And in order to do that, we need to fully understand the, the relationship between Jews and Samaritans. Racial division and strife is something that, may, that has been on the forefront of a lot of people's mind over the past few years for us. But it's not new. That is something that has been around for a long time since sin entered the world. And we're looking at a tension right here between Jews and Samaritans that was one of the most ugly, ugly racial divisions of of this time period. The racial tension started 400 years earlier when in Babylon captivity the Samaritans were Jews who intermarried with the Assyrians. Now if you read the Old Testament at all, the Assyrians were one of, if not the biggest enemy of Israel, the last people you would want to mingle with. And the Samaritans intermarried with them. So just to give you guys an idea, Jews would consider Samaritans so unclean and disgusting that if they ate with one, they would then be considered unclean. Quarantine for 14 days, whatever. (laughs) Just a couple chapters before, I'm flipping one page in my Bible to... Chapter 954, Jesus preaches in a Samaritan village, and they reject him. And the disciples say, this is 954, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? I always just like laughed at that, like it was just some one-off story. Like that is not random. Samaritans, Jews would have thought, they have no business anywhere near us. They're disgusting. Just one more to help you guys feel this. There is a traditional Jewish prayer that many would recite that literally ended like this. And Lord, do not let the Samaritans see the resurrection. Could you imagine that? Ending your prayer like that? Literally, and Lord, let the Samaritans be damned. That's how this prayer would end. The tension here is is so, so heavy. One commentator said this, 
if the Jew in the story weren't half dead, he might have probably pushed the loathsome Samaritan away. Does this help you guys understand a little more why there was probably an audible gasp in the room when Jesus introduces the hero of the story as the Samaritan? This is one of the many times Jesus goes out of his way to exalt those who the culture cancels. Remember, Jesus is answering the question, who is my neighbor? And he answers with a story about a Samaritan giving help and showing love to a Jew. So who is my neighbor? And Jesus tells the story of the Samaritan. Do you know what that is, 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 it says to me? Jesus wants us to know the width of the love he is calling us to. And the width is anyone. Even the person you struggle with the absolute most. The person that you think deserves love the absolute least. The person that may, maybe you're disgusted by. So I want you to take a second and think about the, the person that's coming to mind right now that you struggle to love the most, the person that has made you angry this week, the person who, when you interact with them, it's, it's so hard to love this person. That is exactly who Jesus wants you to think of right now when he says, when he's talking about the width of loving your neighbor as yourself. That's why he chooses to make a Samaritan the hero of this story. So that brings us to our last question, which I mentioned is not explicitly asked by the lawyer, but this one's for free because Jesus answers this question even though it's not asked. And that is, question three, what does it look like to love our neighbor as ourselves? Remember, that's the crux of this whole interaction, right? The guy says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, go keep the law perfectly. Love the Lord your God. Love your neighbor as yourself. He says, who is my neighbor? He gives them the story, and now he's going to show us what it looks like to actually obey the command to love our neighbor as ourself. So let's look at the Samaritan. What does it look like to love our neighbor as ourself? I'm in verse 34. Let's go 33. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. That's the first thing we see the Samaritan do that the other two didn't. He came to where he was. He actually stops and comes to the dead man. Why is this worth stopping and mentioning? Because the other two didn't even, didn't even stop and, and go to him. They just kept it moving. And I was convicted by this this, this week, guys, as I'm thinking about it. How many people in this, in, in this church and outside of these ch- this church are really experiencing pain and suffering and hurt and how many times am I moving so quick doing my own thing that I don't even realize it I don't even stop and come to them the next thing we see him do is he had compassion same verse he came to him and when he saw him he had compassion this is an important important word that I want to talk about with you guys. The Bible was, the New Testament was written in Greek. The Greek word for this compassion is splanknitsomai. I YouTubed it. That's the best I can do, all right? It's the same, this is an important word, splanknitsomai. It's the same word throughout, that's used throughout all the Gospels of when Jesus interacts with people that are really hurting. 
blind, crippled, lame, demon-possessed. The word means, now follow me here, the word means to be moved as to one's bowels with compassion. That sounds weird, right? The bowels were thought to be the seat of love and pity. So the word literally means a stomach-turning sympathy and compassion that is felt so deeply within you that it hurts. This is the kind of compassion that the Samaritan felt. Now hold on to that word because we're going to return to that word in a minute. The, The next thing we see is the Samaritan sacrificially give of himself. He bound up his wounds. This would have most likely involved him ripping off some of his own garments to bind up the guy's wound. My guess is he didn't have a first aid kit on his donkey. This would have involved getting down and dirty and bandaging this guy's wounds. He pours on oil and wine. Oil would soothe the man's wounds. Wine would disinfect the guy's wounds. This would have been some of his most treasured possessions on his journey, wine and oil. But he pours it out for the sake of helping this man. He set him on his own animal. Guess who's walking? The Samaritan. And he brought him to an inn, and he didn't just drop him off, but he goes in and stays with him and cares for him. And then when he finally leaves, he gives two denarii to the innkeeper and says, anything else, put it on my tab. Two denarii, to give you an idea, would have been enough for 24 more days stay. This, Jesus is showing us, is what loving your neighbor as yourself looks like. Dropping everything, being moved with compassion, and sacrificially giving of yourself to help that person. So in question two, who is my neighbor? Jesus is showing us the width of the gospel, right? Everyone, including and especially those who you struggle with the most. In question three, he's showing us the depth of the love he's calling us to. Love your neighbor as yourself. The golden rule Jesus teaches in Matthew 7. Do unto others as they would, as you would have them do to you. How would you want to be treated if you were laying dead on the side of the road, taking your last breaths? This is the love that's going to shine in this this city and to the ends of the earth in Christians. This is when Jesus says, you are the light of the world. A A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. This is part of what makes us shine like a city set on a hill. Love. Gospel love. Not just loving our, you know, those who we love. Everyone does that. Jesus says himself in, in Matthew 5 that even the tax collectors love those who love him. Even the Gentiles love those who love him. But he says love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. This width of love to all people and this depth of love of sacrificially giving yourself and dropping everything and showing compassion to people. This is the gospel love that Christians are called to and the gospel love that is going to shine for the world to see. I was at a funeral yesterday with a dear, uh, for a dear family member um, that passed away. And she was not very flashy. There was not many things that, 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 that um, stood out to me about You know, I didn't see her that often, but I would have never thought the stories that I heard at this funeral of the love, the sacrificial, 
gospel love that she showed to all those around her. She, she was at a church in, in northeast Philly in a rough neighborhood and just hearing stories, not just from believers, but from unbelievers. The chief of police stood up there and told stories of how she loved the most hurting people, those who are knotted out on drugs on the side of the road, prostitutes, those who had homeless, people who had no place to live. And people, you could tell, were moved by this. People who weren't even believers were like, something's going on there. Something, how, how, did she lo- how does she love people like that? It's because she had the power of Christ within her. She had the Holy Spirit that gave her the power to love people like that. And that is the love that's going to shine to those around us. So I want to recap the Q&A real quick. Question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Answer, love God with your whole heart and your whole soul and love your neighbor as yourself. Question, who is my neighbor? Everyone. Answer, everyone, including and especially those who you struggle most with. Question, what kind of love do I need to show them? Compassionate, committed, and sacrificial love. All right, so let's all go do this. That would not be a good way to end what we're doing here. Anyone with an ounce of self-awareness in here right now who understands the call that Jesus is calling us to will say, I could never do that. I, could ne- I can't even make it through the rest of this day with doing that. I could never do this. That's exactly where God's word is meant to put us in a place of desperation that says, Lord, I could never do this. I could never do this on my own. God's word and God's commands are not meant to put us in a place where we're strategizing this week of how we can keep his law perfectly, but in a place of desperation that says, Lord, I can't do this. I haven't done this. Please help me. Save me. Give me power. Help me. That is exactly where God's word is meant to put us. Now, I want you guys to remember the Greek word that we just learned a few few minutes ago. I would ask somebody to holler it out, but that, it could probably get ugly. Splangnitsomai um, is the Greek word that was used for what? Compassion, right? That word is used 12 times in the New Testament. Ten of them are to refer directly to Jesus when he is interacting with hurting people, like I mentioned before. The other two, one is father of the prodigal son when the prodigal son returns home and the father sees him and feels compassion and the last one that makes 12 is right here in the good samaritan why is this important because this word in real history and in parables is meant to show us the yearning and radically compassionate love of christ for hurting and broken people like you and me If you're a Christian, this is true of you. At one point, you were dead. On the side of the road, not able to help yourself, not able to even call for help, totally doomed to to die a spiritual death separated from God. And not only were you, you weren't just a victim, you were actually, you actually deserved that death because you had rejected God. I have rejected God. But Jesus came And saw you, saw me, his enemy, who had rejected him, laying dead. And he didn't pass by on the other side. He came to us. He showed us that heart-yearning compassion. And he gave his life to bind up our wounds and to save us. 
He didn't just pour out oil and wine. He poured out His own life on the cross. He brought us safely to the Father and paid our debt and said, if they do anything else, put it on my tab. The Good Samaritan is meant to point us to Jesus. He is the one who has entered into our brokenness, showed us compassion, and healed us and saved us. And if you're in here this morning and you've never known Jesus in that way, his offer stands to you right now. He sees your hurt. He sees your failures. He sees your sin. He knows it all. And he looks at you with compassion and says, come to me. Will you come to him? Jesus is the only one who has ever perfectly loved God with all his heart, all his soul, and all his strength, and all his mind, and loved his neighbors as himself. We, on the other hand, fall short of that every day. But in the gospel, we are offered a great exchange. By believing and trusting in Jesus, we can receive his perfect righteousness and be given the power to love people the way he did. That's, that's such an important part of the gospel that I feel like sometimes gets lost with me. The gospel shows us that we can be forgiven through Jesus. Amen. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. The gospel also, though, shows us that we can be given power through Jesus to walk just like he did. Of course we're going to fall short, but he gives us the power to walk in the way he did. Jesus is our example in how to love God with all our mind, all our soul, all our strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. And Jesus is our source for forgiveness and grace when we fall short. And Jesus is our power through his spirit to love others wide and deep in the way that he did. Amen.